This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, it is that time of year for our hot question of the day. Lots of talk about the PNE. They've unveiled their lineup for its annual Summer Nights concert series. And it's, as always, very impressive. And, as always, has created quite a bit of debate as well. But if you're going to pick a day to go to the PNE, you want to make sure that it's on a day when you might be able to see one of these acts, right? Let me just run through the list for you. It starts on August 17th. You've got Blue Rodeo. You've got ZZ Top, 98 Degrees. Uh, I know, 98 Degrees, right? I- I'd go just to see Nick Lachey. Uh, Burton Cummings, Vince Neil, Smokey Robinson, Collective Soul and the Gin Blossoms, Sticks. I would go just to hear Mr. Roboto, like who wouldn't? UB40, Colin James. Uh, there's an act called I Love the 90s featuring, it's going to be great, Vanilla Ice, Montel Jordan, Bismarcky, and Rob Bass. And then the next night, there's MC Hammer and Rob, um, Bobby Brown. Then there's Billy Idol. Then there's the Beach Boys. And then there's TLC on their 25th anniversary tour. Great lineup, right? But we had to narrow it down to what we thought were the four biggest choices for our hot question of the day. So we want to know which of these acts do you think is the biggest deal is it billy idol i love that song you start listening to the billy idol songs you're like yeah there's so many good ones maybe though you are more of a zz top fan on. That'd be pretty good. Summer night at the fair hearing ZZ Top, right? Or, and Claire Allen, our producer, lobbied very hard for this one, is the big ticket, Smokey Robinson. You know, I got to admit, that'd be pretty nice to listen to on a hot summer night, too. Outside at the fair with a corn dog, you know, maybe some mini donuts. Fantastic. Uh, then a lot of people, a lot of anticipation about the 25th anniversary tour of TLC. That'd be a good one. So we picked what we thought were the four biggest. So for our hot question of the day today, we want to know which one of those do you think is the biggest? Which of those would you be like, I am going to the PE that night to see that particular act? So vote on Twitter at CKNW or at Simisarah980. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com, or hey, call our buzz line and give us your story. Maybe you've got a great one. Uh, let us know. You can call us at 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. I have a feeling, I'm just my prediction, Billy Idol's going to run away with this thing because Billy Idol is fantastic, but who knows? I could be wrong. Maybe there's a lot of TLC fans out there or Smokey Robinson fans. You tell us, of those acts, which one's the biggest deal? Which is the one that's going to make you go to the PE and sit there and watch them perform? Let us know for our hot question of the day. 
We had quite the discussion on the show yesterday about the housing market and real estate in BC. And it was because of new research that had been done by a local property tax appraisal firm that showed, according to them, how much equity has been lost in Metro Vancouver because of the drop in the cost of housing. The figure they came up with by using BC assessment information is $90 billion across Metro Vancouver. That is the amount of equity that has been lost. In the city of Vancouver alone, they said the average drop in equity is around $150,000 per household. But of course, some neighborhoods would see a bigger drop, say, than others. In West Vancouver, it was more like $450,000. That's quite a bit. We spoke to Paul Sullivan. He is the property tax agent and senior partner with Burgess Collie Sullivan and Associates. And just to remind you about what he told us, he said this change is happening too quickly, and he believed the provincial government must accept its share of the blame. We needed supply, and and this government came out and said we are going to crush the demand, and so that's only one side of the equation. They've crushed the demand, they've crushed the confidence in in, in the market. New housing starts are down thirty percent, and we still have people coming to our province. We have people that want to buy homes, and if we have if we haven't done anything about the supply side of the equation, what's going to happen over the next couple of years here is we're going to have pent up demand. We're not going to have homes for these people to buy, and we're going to see the next uptick in value. Okay, that was Paul Sullivan. Now, as you know, if you were listening yesterday, I do disagree with what Paul Sullivan had to say, because all you have to do is go on to realtor.ca and check your neighborhood to see supply is there. There's plenty of listings where the disconnect is between the price that potential buyers want to pay for what sellers are selling. That is where we still have a problem. Now, many of you did contact us yesterday to tell your stories, to have your say, and I have to say that the majority opinion that we heard was listeners saying, you know what? Housing costs need to come down. So this is a good thing. Others, though, didn't think so. They thought this was going to harm people who had bought in the last few years, and that is a legit concern, uh, that it might harm seniors who were counting on that increased equity in their homes as well. And a couple of people who pointed out that, you know, we should talk to Tom Davidoff about this because, you know, he he was wrote about speculation taxes and things that can be done, and I'm sure he's got something to say. You're right. He does have something to say. We wanted to continue that conversation. So just before we came on air, I managed to track down Professor Tom Davidoff from the uh, UBC Souter School of Business. I mean, he may have been in Montreal. That doesn't mean that we couldn't find him, though. And here's our discussion. Well, Tom, thanks so much for being back with us to talk about housing, which I know a very popular subject. We were talking yesterday about the amount of equity that's been lost. The number that was being used was $89 billion. Do you buy that? Does that seem realistic to you? I can believe it. You know, we've had a 10% decline and, you know, we got something like a trillion dollars, I think, uh, in equity. So, you know, multiply that by 0.1 and, uh, you know, there you go. It's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Do you see a reshaping or a reshifting in the housing market in Metro Vancouver? Well, I think we still have a long run situation of a market in high demand. Uh, where it's hard to build. So I don't think there's reshaping in that way. I think we're building vertically. We're seeing the condoification of a lot of the land in the long run. In the short run, though, there's risk. You know, uh, we've got slowed down sales. Prices have already started falling. Real estate cyclical. I think we can expect a few more months of bad news. And I think the condo market will be particularly interesting to watch because Unlike single family, we actually have a lot of supply coming down the pipeline. 
Right. There was some criticism with these latest numbers of the government perhaps going too far, doing too much to cool the market. What do you think about that? Well, I think if this government uh, managed to pull off a 10% price decline or 10 to 20% and then see a leveling off, it would be hard to beat that. I mean, prices were too high. There was a major affordability problem. Uh, I don't think people were happy with that. So something in the you know low double digits, I think, would be uh, threading the needle about correctly because you know you didn't want things to keep on the way they were going. On the other hand, you know you see a 30, 40, 50 percent correction, uh, and you know you're starting to see that magnitude at the very highest end. But uh, for the overall market, you know, a bit of a softening, but not enough to create uh, catastrophe and mortgage loan defaults. You know, that's about what we'd like to see. Right. So you're saying right now it's a very precarious balance, isn't it? It is. And, you know, people will say, well, you know, with these price declines, people are going to build less. So then prices are going to rise. But, you know, that's a bit of a funny argument. You don't want prices to fall because then there won't be enough building and then prices won't uh, fall by as much when there's more buildings. So, you know, it's delicate. Usually governments want to see price booms. You know, most voters are homeowners. And uh, housing is a very important form of wealth for most people, maybe the most important. And so governments usually root for high housing prices. We're in this very unusual situation in Vancouver where there's been such stress on affordability that we wanted to see a bit of decline. But I think what we've seen in this study is there's not an unlimited appetite for price declines. Yeah, that's true. Now, um, when it comes to the speculation tax, lots of discussion about that. I had some real estate agents yesterday really criticizing you know, the government for doing this. What do you think? Is it, is it doing, do you think, what it was intended to do? Well, I think this report implied that it did, because if you think about what changed in the middle of 2018, when all segments of the market started to be weak in Vancouver, condo as well as single family, the speculation tax is the big local change. Mm-hmm. There's also the stress test federally, but I think the speculation tax probably has had some impact uh, in generating declines throughout the market. And, you know, do we think it's a disaster if people who don't make their home in Vancouver and aren't landlords find it a little harder to buy property here? Uh, I don't think that's uh, catastrophic, but of course, other people may have different opinions. Are there enough? Do you th- are there too many taxes now, do you think, uh, on the housing market, or is this what it's going to take to cool it down? Well, you know, from a social science perspective, perspective, there's too many taxes because it's very hard to disentangle what caused what because we've Mm -hmm. had so much thrown at the market. From a perspective of society, I think, you know, we long ago just had a different tax system and just said we're going to have high property taxes, but we're going to have low income and sales taxes so that we reward the workforce but punish real estate investors in the tax code. We never would have had the problems that developed. On the other hand, Politically, once you've got low property taxes, nobody wants to jump to everybody who's a homeowner pays higher property taxes politically. So you're going to have to dance around that and sort of find the kinds of buyers who you really want out of the market and tax them differently uh, from everybody else. So I think it's almost inevitable that if we're not going to do wholesale property tax, general tax reform, you're going to have to nibble around the edges and take a bunch of nibbles until you get things right. And how close do you think we are to getting things right? We're nibbling right now. How close are we, do you think, to finding that right balance? You know, I think uh, certainly if I were the uh, NDP, you know, Carol James, I'd 
dial it back now and just say, all right, let, let, let's see how things evolve from here, because you don't want to see that housing crash. I don't think Vancouver is now a very appealing place for rich people from all over the world to park their money in real estate. And I think it was a couple of years ago. Uh, so in that way, I think there's been a significant change. So if that's what people were looking for, then you can call that aspect of it a success. I think so. You know, I mean, I, I just I think it is true that people were buying houses at a fairly rapid clip uh, as uh, something other than a primary residence for breadwinners. And I think that has really slowed down or even, you know, close to stop. So I think that was something people wanted. And I think it's what we've gotten. Right. Because there clearly is still demand out there, right? Because there's people looking for houses. They're just not buying. They're kind of waiting on the sidelines until the price comes to something that they think is more acceptable. So how many, how much longer do you think we're going to have this kind of stalemate in the market? It's very, very hard to tell. You know, if it was just uh, demand and local sellers, I think looking at the U.S., if you think about the real prime markets like the San Francisco's and the Boston's when they had the housing downturn in the 2000s, it didn't take that long, you know, something like a year or two to hit bottom. Uh, But what we have is this looming condo inventory. Now, the condos have all been pre-sold, and they were mostly pre-sold a long time ago when prices were lower. But some of the stuff that started in 2018 is going to get built, and the people who bought the pre-sales might be down 30, 40% uh, versus what they paid. And I just don't know how that's going to shake out. So we still have another maybe a year or two to figure out what's going to happen. Well, uh, you you really never know in the short run. Again, the long run, I think, is rosy for Vancouver. I don't think there's any doubt that the next couple of months are going to be rocky. But when will hit bottom? Very hard to tell. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me if it was something like November of this year, but it also, given what's going on in condos, I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of years of weakness. All right, Tom, thanks so much. Real pleasure. Thank you. That's Tom Davidoff, economics professor at UBC Sauter School of Business. For years, we have been talking about the oncoming silver tsunami, it's been called, the aging of the baby boomer generation and the demand that is going to create when it comes to uh, taking care of that aging population. Well, the BC Care Providers Association says that demand has been created. It has arrived and there is a lack of investment. Their latest report says the demand for long-term care is going to spike in the next 20 years with up to 45,000 new long-term care beds needed over that time. The report goes on to make a number of new recommendations on this issue. So we wanted to talk about the whole thing with the help of Daniel Fontaine, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association and chair of the Canadian Association for Long-Term Care. Daniel, thanks for being back with us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Okay, tell me about some of these recommendations. Like, What do we need to do to make sure this generation is looked after? Well, first and foremost, we need to make the investments. Uh, we actually have to begin starting to construct uh, new uh, care beds. It's just quite simple. Uh, we just Right now, we're about 3,000 short of what we need in the province of British Columbia to actually meet existing demand, forget looking out into the next 20 years. We know from some of the data that we obtained from the province that back in March of last year, there was already 1,400 people waiting to access a long-term care bed, and that was up 7% year over year. And as the baby boom generation enters into those retirement years, and we've known this, like you said, for several decades that this is coming, uh, we're now just, it's now here. It's no longer about something in the future or theoretical. We're now right in the middle of that. And this report is really an eye-opener. And I must say, I've been working in this sector now for about seven years, and even myself, I was quite... (laughs) 
taken aback at the numbers uh, when the data came back in in terms of the the numbers of, of care beds we're going to need. So it's, it's it really will re- require us to sit down with the government for the government to work with us as a partner uh, and to be able to to map this out and to make sure it's done as efficiently and as effectively as possible over the coming decades. So, Daniel, if that's the case, then are the existing models going to work or are we going to have to think differently here? We absolutely have to think differently. And that's what the report talks about. So it's not just about building long-term care beds. That is absolutely critical. But we need to make investments in things like home care and assisted living. And we need to provide other options as well so that if people do want to live at home uh, longer, they should be able to do that. But I must say, uh, on the area of home care, you've probably heard me uh, talking about this in the last few weeks. I'm concerned because the province is actually moving away from partnering with nonprofits and other organizations to deliver home care. And they're bringing all the workers in. And about a year from now, all these 4,000 plus workers are now going to be government employees. The costs are going to be going up on the home care side. This is at a time when our population is aging. And we know based on this report that we're going to have to build 45,000 more beds. And if we're going to do that cost-effectively, it's going to have to be done in partnership with with organizations that are out there providing that service right now. Okay, but that's that's a lot of demand that's going to be needed fairly quickly. Have other jurisdictions mm. risen to this challenge, and how have they done it? Well, other provinces, we've gone through a spate of elections, as we've all witnessed in the last uh, yeah. you know, number of years, and so there's been a lot of commitments everywhere from Ontario, Alberta, you know, back east around the development of new uh, care beds. They, they understand that there has to be an expansion. I know that in Ontario, they've kind of cut back the total number of beds, but they're still going forward, even under the Doug Ford government, in terms of uh, developing new beds. This is really a national problem, although it's more acute in British Columbia because we're a destination for retirees. That's what I was wondering, people. yeah. People love, I love living here. I know, but when they retire, they tend to move out here, right? Which I think makes it for BC an even more critical issue. Absolutely, and it's very critical. In fact, it's so critical that a couple of weeks ago, we declared a health human resources emergency in the Okanagan and the BC interior. And that's because there simply are so many people moving into the interior, retiring, and we just simply do not have uh, the care staff. And the report, although it doesn't focus on that, the report does speak to the numbers. And again, those numbers are staggering. 19,000 new care providers that we need. That's a net new increase of care providers in the province. That's 13,000 care aides, like 4,000 nurses, a couple thousand other allied health professionals. We don't have a plan right now, Simi. There is no health human resources plan in the province right now to to even come close to getting close to those numbers. And we have to get going on this. And I know I've been sounding this alarm for three or four years, but I just feel like we're not not moving quick enough. Is one type of care, Daniel, like more popular than others? Like, are we going to need to, what do we need to ramp up here? It's a mix of everything. We need more home care. We've heard that clearly from seniors. We've heard it from the health authorities. We've heard it from the, the... uh, you know, other organizations that have said we need more home care, that's critical so that people can stay at home as long as they can and not be required to move into long-term care. But we also know that at some point, people can no longer live in their homes any longer, or they perhaps want to sell their homes and move into a different uh, lifestyle, so maybe independent living or assisted living. It's a real mix of everything. It's not like it's just one particular um, type of housing that'll solve the problem. It's going to have to be a real kind of holistic approach to it. And we know, um, you know, through the, the fact that we've already been delivering a lot of this care, we know what to do. We just have to do more of it. And that is a political decision that will require some, uh, you know, somebody to sharpen their pencil in Victoria and, and get to work on it. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. So is the industry prepared to do this? Like, can they ramp up? Are there enough mm-hmm. employees? And if not, where are we going to find them? 
No, there are not enough employees. Well, fully admit that we've we've published multiple reports on that. So what we need to do, and, and we've submitted a, a proposal to get the government. In fact, when Minister Dix became minister a couple of years ago, we uh, reached out to him immediately and said, "Let's get going on this. Here's a proposal to actually begin attracting, getting more people into the sector." Uh, you know, for example, we just there was a job fair in Calgary just a couple of weeks ago, and they expected about a hundred carriages to come to the job fair. Over 500 carriers came to the job fair in Calgary. Many of them said that they'd love to move to the Okanagan and to British Columbia. But our provincial restrictions that we've imposed are keeping those workers out of the province. They're not allowed to move into BC. So at a time when we're trying to get more people, we should be thinking out of the box a little bit and figuring Mm -hmm. out ways of getting people in. And more importantly, training people here locally, getting our kids in high school to be trained to work in healthcare professions and and increasing the funding for training in our post-secondary institutions. All those things we had put forward in, in a plan, and we're, we were hopeful that the government was going to, uh, to work with us, but to date, there's been really no uh, response. Okay, what kind of restrictions are we talking about here? What prevents somebody who's working mm-hmm. in Saskatchewan or Manitoba from moving here? So the restriction is that if you want to uh, come here from Alberta, you have to be registered on something called the BC Carried Registry. And we actually support the BC Carried Registry. We think it's a good good thing. But here's what's happened is over the years, they've continued to raise the bar on how you can actually be accepted to the Carried Registry. So if you're a fully trained Carried, just graduated from a public institution in Calgary, and you want to be a Carried in British Columbia, you have to fly or drive all the way to Vancouver. You have to be tested by this public agency. You then have to pay $800 to get the testing. And here's the kicker, uh, Simi. Do you know what the pass-fail rate is for everybody who's who's fully trained and qualified who comes to BC to to get on the carried registry? It's 1% pass, 99% fail. So, like, we're making them do all that, jump through all those hoops, and then we're not even passing them? 99 percent fail so you can imagine if you're carried in alberta or saskatchewan and you want to move here to bc and work in our sector and you want to contribute and work with seniors why would you do that when the pass fail rate is one percent pass and 99 percent fail so we've we've really uh you know asked the, the minister to to rethink this policy of charging 800 dollars, forcing people to come to vancouver for this testing and to figure out why the system is set up to keep 99% of those fully trained carriers from from the prairies from working here in BC. So we don't have right now an adequate response to that, but we've raised it to the government's attention a couple of weeks ago, and we know that we've been getting a lot of response to it in the interior. A lot of people have written us, phoned us, and said, good on you guys for raising that, and hopefully the government will take action. Okay, and which ministry does that fall under? Is that also the Ministry of Health? All under the Ministry of Health. The carried registry is uh, is managed by the Ministry of Health. It's funded by the Ministry of Health. And uh, with the stroke of a pen, the minister could open up the doors to perhaps thousands of additional carrieds who are wanting to, to perhaps trained in the Philippines as a registered nurse or a, a licensed practical nurse who want to work here and they're being restricted and, and, and working in either other professions or they're going to stay in their home provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan and not be here. And I tell you, the seniors I'm talking to, they want the care. They want the care to be there when they need it. And putting up these kind of red tape and bureaucracy is not, in my opinion, the mm-hmm. approach, uh, not effective approach. Daniel, thanks so much for telling us about it. Oh, thanks for having me on. Appreciate that is it. Daniel Fontaine, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association and chair of the Canadian Association for Long-Term Care, talking about their report that says there's a lot of things that BC needs to do and it struggled to keep up with the demand for long-term care.
Well, once again, we are talking about a very hot topic, and that has to do in the city of Surrey and the arrival, potentially, of a police force that is not the RCMP. We've been waiting on this report that was being done that's supposed to be sent to the provincial government to see if everything is on track for that to happen. Well, nobody has seen this report yet, so we don't know what the plans actually are. Now, there's a private meeting of Surrey City Council that has just wrapped up, and it's believed that council actually saw that report on transitioning to a municipal police force for the first time. So we know that our Janet Brown was there outside that meeting. We want to know what she was able to find out. So Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown joins us now. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Simi. Yes, I was here at Surrey City Hall bright and early at 7.30 because the uh, meeting started at 8 a.m. So I just wanted to catch them as they were going in. Councillors went into that meeting, Simi. They did not know what to expect. Uh, They had no agenda in advance. It was just called a special uh, in-camera meeting of council. Uh, It started at 8 a.m., as I said. At about 10.20, Mayor Doug McCallum emerged uh, to talk to me. And um, basically, he said he had no comment, Simi. Here's what he had to tell me. Uh, Here's some of the audio. I have to say that it was a confidential meeting. Um, I will be um, sending out uh, a statement later this afternoon. Um, But at this stage, um, everything has to stay in a confidential basis. So what is the statement going to say this afternoon? Well, you have to wait till you see the statement. It'll be out um, um, probably about mid-afternoon. Has the report on policing gone to the province yet from the city? Again, I can't uh, answer any of your questions because we we had a confidential meeting and um, we're going to keep it that way. But I'm asking you if the report from the city has gone to Victoria yet or when is it planning to be sent there? Again, I have to say that it was a confidential meeting and uh, I'm not at liberty to uh, answer that question at this time. Tell us about the public consultation that begins tomorrow. Are you excited to get that underway? Yeah, I think um, today's um, Tuesday. I think it starts Thursday. But um, um, it's in Cloverdale. The first one's in Cloverdale. Um, we, uh, we're really excited about the public consulting. Um, um, we had it at the... Um, at the um, on the weekend at the Cloverdale Fairgrounds and we got a lot of good comments at that time and so I think that um, we're going to see lots of public engagements over the next um, three to four weeks. And that's how long it's going to last for approximately then? Approximately um, three weeks. We've got three weeks scheduled out of um, going around to our six community um, stations around Surrey and um, I think um, we will be able to wrap up the public consulting certainly within uh, four weeks. All right, so that is Surrey Mayor uh, Doug McCallum talking to our Janet Brown. Now, Janet, I thought it was interesting that he can't even respond to whether or not the report's gone to the province. Yeah, I mean, so much for transparency, right? Um, I, I'm sure there's a good reason for him not to be able to confirm that yet, I, I suppose, and we'll just wait for the statement this afternoon. But here's something interesting. Um, I am still at Surrey City Hall right now, Simi, uh-huh. and um, I have spoken to Councillor Jack Hundile, and he has confirmed to me that he has seen the report. Oh. He would not say when he's seen that report. Uh, he would not say what is in that report, but he says he has indeed seen it. So I'm just getting that news to you because I just uh, finished uh, chatting with him a few minutes ago. So that's new. He has seen the report. I'm assuming 
the other counselors have seen the report, but I can't say because I haven't talked to them as well. Right. Uh, when, as I say, when Mr. Hundial saw that report, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. I can't say, but he's told me he has seen the report. He cannot tell me what is in that report. Uh, so I don't understand, Janet, like what all this secrecy is for this, right? <laughs> because this is a, supposed to be a very public process. So why are they acting like this is some kind of state secret? Well, you know, I understand if they are meeting in camera that they can't discuss what happened in camera this morning. I understand that procedural protocol, but you're right. I mean, this is something at the end of the day that the taxpayers in Surrey are going to be paying for. This is what they are paying for. Um, So why can't we have a little bit more information? And I understand keeping that information in camera that they discussed this morning, whatever it was, I'm assuming... Uh, it was uh, them getting the first look at this police report. But why can't the mayor tell me when the report is going to Victoria? Yeah. Why can't he tell That's the taxpayers simple. and the people of Surrey when the report is going to Victoria? I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me either, Simi. I'm just, you know, reporting the information yeah. that I have so far. But as I say, you know, and as the mayor says, a statement will be coming out sometime this afternoon. They can't even tell me at what time the statement is coming out. Uh, Perhaps maybe uh, the mayor's office has to uh, get on the phone and talk to uh, Mr. Farnworth, the Solicitor General, to sort of get together on this statement, whatever it is. And maybe that's why they can't say right now. But I guess we'll just have to wait, Cindy, and see what this statement has to say. But but that's that's all I know at this point in time. Um, And I'm in... City Hall right now. Okay, they mentioned public consultation coming up, but like to be fair, it's really more like a public information session, isn't it? Like what kind of consultation are we actually talking about? Yes, they are referring to it as public consultation, but it it will be an opportunity for the public to hear as you say, uh, the plans for the transition to a municipal police force. Uh, If if it is approved by the Solicitor General, and we keep forgetting to mention this and it can't be said enough, uh, the city is moving ahead with this, but at the end of the day, it will be up to Solicitor General yeah. Mike Farnworth to approve it. And um, right now, we don't even know if he has the report yet. So, um, lot, yes, these, yeah. these meetings, as we heard from the mayor, are going to take place over the next several weeks um, at six community centers in all. And uh, the public will apparently have a chance to offer their input on what they would like to see with a municipal police force. And Councillor Lori Guerra told me that uh, the public will even have an opportunity to suggest the colors of, of the new force. What about the car the we already saw? I thought this was like a, t- a done deal. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I think that's just a mock-up of uh... what it could look like. Um, yeah, she told me on Friday uh, that the public will have an opportunity to even offer suggestions <laughs> on the colors of, course. Uh, of, of the police car, of the uniforms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So okay. that's very interesting that they're going to be that detailed in, in what they expect to hear from the public. And as I say, the, the first um, public meeting is tomorrow at the Cloverdale Rec Center on 176th Street, and it's from 3 to 7 p.m. And it will be interesting to see who turns out. And uh, I've heard yeah. rumors that there may be some protesters. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Some members of the RCMP may even be there. So oh. we'll have to wait and see what happens to me. We that's will. For sure. Okay, thanks, Janet. Thank you, Simi. That is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown at Surrey City Hall. There's a lot going on in the world of education today. In fact, there's a conference going on in Vancouver right now that has educators from across BC, Canada and the world talking about trends and and what we can expect in the years ahead. But let's face it, here in BC, what we're really focused on is making sure there's a contract that kids are going back to school in September and that there is labour peace between teachers and the government. Class size, composition, you name it. Those are still the thorny issues that are kind of the centre of discussions between the government and the negotiating team for the BC Teachers Federation. Still a month to go until the current contract expires, but we wanted to get an update on how things are going as well and talk about things education related. And Rob Fleming joins us now, the Education Minister. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. Well, how are things going at the bargaining table? There is a lot of concern about this. Uh, Look, I I think I would reflect both the optimism of the government and school districts as well as what we've heard from the BC Teachers Federation, that both parties desire to conclude an agreement by June 30th. We have time left at the table to do that. And, uh, you know, the table is set rather nicely when you look at uh, the rocky, chaotic uh, place that we've been through um, over the last 16 years. Uh, we are at the table now with a billion dollars of new investment into the K-12 system. Uh, we're seeing uh, you know, funding for all categories of students. Special needs education has gone up 23% since we formed government. Uh, rural education has uh, received a significant lift. English language learners, Indigenous education, you name it. There's money in the system, and you're starting to see districts around B.C. right now report in the news that they're having the best budget-making uh, season that they've had uh, literally uh, in, a, in, a, in, in over a decade uh, because there are resources that are being invested into students, into teaching and support staff occupations. There are, of course, as you know, 4,000 new teachers, additional teaching positions uh, in the schools. And when you spread that over 1,500 schools, you're, you've got non-enrolling teachers, you've got extra specialist teachers in schools that we simply didn't have a couple of years ago. And uh, so that's a very different context uh, from where we were uh, just a couple of short years ago. Right. But then why are we hearing about frustrations on the BCTF side that they're saying the government's asking for concessions and, and they're just, they don't sound very happy with how things are going? Well, look, I, I, I will let uh, them uh, speak for their own characterization of it. Um, what, I, what I think we can agree on, though, is that in a very short period of time as a government, we're seeing record amounts of money invested, not just for educational programming and services, but record investment on things that are important to parents, kids, and uh, teaching and support staff, too, around seismic investments, new schools, getting rid of portables, a record capital budget. I mean, these are all positive things that the BCTF and other education stakeholders were, were demanding from the previous government that, that we never got. I mean, BC went from the second best funded school system in 2001 to the second worst by the end of their term. We've added uh, close to $1,200 per pupil to the school system in a very short period of time. So it, it is a different conversation we're having. It really is about how in the 21st century do we structure inclusive education uh, today uh, to benefit students the most. There are no concessions in terms of our government seeking to take a single penny 
of that new investment off the table. So I would I would differ respectfully uh, to their characterization of it, but I'll let bargaining happen at right. the bargaining table. Has class size and composition been dealt with? I, well, those are areas that are under active discussion. It's really a, a it's really a discussion about how do you best support students, especially students who have special learning needs in the school system. Those are the students that historically and still have not been as well served as other students in the school system. That's where our focus should be on vulnerable learners uh, throughout British Columbia. And quite frankly, we're having a conversation that we need to have. How do we ensure that BC lives up to the promise of having equity in the school system? You know, we had 40 years ago, our school system said, look, uh, a kid in uh, Prince George uh, or Surrey or Victoria or the Okanagan should have the same access to high-quality educational services. We had a system that was starved for resources under the previous government. We've now uh, added back uh, record levels of funding, and we're trying to get back to a discussion about uh, educational equity because that's an important driving principle in BC. What is the government's position then on, if a deal isn't reached in the next month, on negotiating through the summer? Is that possible? Yeah, I was very pleased to hear that the BC Teachers Federation is open to bargaining over the summer if we need to. Uh, I'd still like to reach an agreement uh, between the BC Public School Employers Association and the BC Teachers Federation uh, by the expiration of the contract June 30th. I think that would be a good signal for everybody who has uh, worked in the BC education system. And, uh, you know, on, on that, the, the, the union representing teachers and, and the government uh, are absolutely at one mind. Now, I know there's also this um, big education conference that is going on uh, in Vancouver right now. What are yeah. we hearing? Like, what are we hearing about the new curriculum here in BC that we've kind of recently instituted? Is that keeping up with what's going on in the world? Actually, it's very well ahead of where the rest of the world is. And so, uh, you know, the OECD, which is headquartered in Paris, um, asked if BC would be interested in hosting uh, this conference, which is really about looking ahead to where the school system needs to be in all of the uh, OECD nations by 2030. And there's a recognition that BC has pursued education reforms. It's reinvigorated its curriculum. It's, it's starting to have discussions about uh, and, and writing curriculum towards the new competencies that students need to be successful to transition into post-secondary education in the world of work. And so we're not used to bragging about ourselves as Canadians or British Columbians, but the rest of the world is very interested in what we're doing. They're, they're of course, interested in a couple of other jurisdictions. We're used to talking about Finland and uh, South Korea and other countries like that where they have uh, very good student results. But, you know, if BC were a country, we'd be in the top three in the world in terms of reading results. We're in the top ten consistently when it comes to uh, science and mathematics. So we're doing a lot of things right here, and they're interested in in what some of the elements are uh, in British Columbia that's part of our success story. Yeah, what can we do better, though? Uh, I think we we have uh, uh, already begun to talk to delegates this morning. The conference is just underway about how important uh, reconciliation is for our province and our country, how the uh, school system writ large uh, historically has utterly failed and, and culturally oppressed, quite frankly, uh, Indigenous uh, learners in our school system and how you know we're we're relative we're we're in a relatively early uh, spot in the journey to reconciliation, but that that holds tremendous province uh, promise I should say for BC students, and uh, so they're interested in that. They're interested in the reputation we have for high quality teaching and instruction, and 
support staff, how, how important professional development is. Um, also, just, you know, there's a global conversation about what healthy and effective learning environments for students looks like. And, uh, you know, we've made a number of initiatives recently around uh, mental health and well-being for students. That's embedded in our new curriculum. Uh, we are um, trying to... Uh, make each student an engaged learner and by changing the curriculum in the way that we've done and moving away from provincial exams, for example, to uh, assessments that uh, measure the competencies of our kids in the school system, uh, we're hitting all the right notes in terms of what is global best practice. Now, what can you say to parents, Minister Fleming, then, on this issue of getting an agreement with teachers? I just feel like for parents, you know, they've been there before, they get very cynical, they get very wary, apprehensive about this. What can you say to them about that? I would say this, look, we are uh, trying to build a new relationship uh, with teachers in BC. And I think we have uh, started uh, in a very respectful tone, recognizing the excellence of teachers. Uh, since we formed government a couple of years ago, we had a we had a terrible situation where teachers were demonized and attacked by the previous government. Uh, we have uh, tried to support uh, teachers in everything we do, uh, including with significant uh, new investments into classroom learning resources. And uh, look where we were in May 2014, when uh, I don't think the government bargained in good faith at that time uh, under Premier Christy Clark. They, in fact, in May of 2014, right around this time, exactly five years ago, uh, had locked out teachers, had attacked them and provoked them by docking their pay by 10%. We are not in that situation at all. We are bargaining over what would be a good contract for kids and for teachers and the classroom. It's an entirely different respectful conversation and there will be people that are, are going to say things uh, outside away from the bargaining table I can't control that but I, I can tell you that we have started bargaining earlier than ever before we're both determined to get to a contract and have a normal province where teachers and the Ministry of Education and our school district partners uh, remember why we're there it's about student success and we should be talking about education policy uh, through the lens of what's going to make life better for our kids and make them engaged learners and love learning for the rest of their lives. Minister Fleming, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Simi. I appreciate that. That's Rob Fleming, the Minister of Education here in BC. Does feel like nature is kind of waking up at this time of year, doesn't it? Oh, remember last, was it last week or the week before we talked about spiders? I haven't been able to get that spider conversation out of my head, especially since I was cleaning the garage last weekend and I came across uh, more than one type of spider, more than one really large spider of which I just swept them out of the garage. I did not do anything to harm them because I kept remembering our fantastic spider fanatic that we had from SFU teaching us about how they're not dangerous, don't hurt them, they're fine. So I was I, important to remember that. Also, same thing, important to remember when we're talking about bees. Like, yes, they sting us sometimes, and maybe we try to chase them out of the house. In fact, I chased three of them out of the house over the weekend because I had all the windows open. But bees are absolutely critical and crucial to a lot of different functions in nature. But we also know their population is declining and they need our help. Researchers at York University want people to understand those threats so that we can all work to help protect them. To talk more about that, we're joined by Sheila Arcola, who's an uh, assistant professor of environmental studies at York University. Sheila, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Do you think that people are understanding the threat that bees are under right now? Um, actually, I don't, <laughs> to be honest. I think people are very concerned about bees and they know it's an important issue, but I don't think people really understand how complex 
the problem is. How complex is it then? Tell us a bit more about it. So in Canada, we have over 850 different species of bees. And for most of them, we don't even know how well they're doing. We don't know if they're remaining common, if they're in decline. Uh, For the bumblebees, which is only about 42 species out of that 855, we have the best information. And from those, we know that about one in four are at risk of extinction. So that means we have a lot of different things going on. Uh, Some species are in decline, some aren't. Some are in decline in places where they wouldn't be experiencing habitat loss, so maybe in the boreal forest. Um, Some might be more susceptible to pesticide use, but it really depends on the species and it depends on where it is. Okay, and um, so and I think we kind of oversimplify things to think about pesticides as bad yeah. and to think about the honeybee as something that needs to be saved. Yeah, that's what I was wondering too. Like, do we know what's causing this or is it a variety of causes that depends on the type of bee? Um, it's a variety of causes for the bumblebees that we know the best. Um, we've seen declines such as the western bumblebee and the west coast, which is Bombus oxentalis, is found there in BC, and the rusty patch bumblebee out in eastern Canada. Um, it looks like disease is probably the most, um, the biggest threat to those species. Specifically, um, we use managed bees for agriculture, and it seems like our managed bees are spreading diseases to our wild bees, which is causing massive die-offs. And what can we do to prevent that? Well, one of the biggest things is just for people to understand that um, we need to to conserve our wild bees and not worry too much about our managed bees. So one of the things when people say, like, oh, let's save the bees, let's get a honeybee hive in our backyard, that actually doesn't make sense. It's kind of the same as putting a whole bunch of, say, um, Asian carp into your local lake to save the fish. It doesn't make any sense. It's not going to save the biodiversity. It's just adding uh, non-native species into a system. Right, but don't so the European those... honeybee is a non-native species that's managed by humans to uh, produce honey. Right, but don't those managed bees provide some critical services? They pollinate crops, right? They're taken to farms to do all that kind of work. Yeah, they're probably really important in areas where there's not a lot of good habitat to have wild bees do the work. Uh, So uh, specifically in um, California, where they have the almond groves, you really need honeybees to come in there and do a lot of the pollination. But a lot of studies show that native bees are the ones that that are doing a lot of the work. And some crops, like blueberry, require buzz pollination, which honeybees can't even do. So in those cases, we need different types of bees to do the pollination. So when you bring in a honeybee colony, it might be um, sort of a quick fix, but really if we want to keep our food system sustainable, we want to keep as many of our native species around as possible. So how do we do this then? How do we boost the wild bee population? Making sure that we have lots of native habitat, so setting aside areas for wildflowers, for nesting habitat like sticks and rotting logs and you know, messy things um, is one way. Making sure that we're using integrated pest management, so only using pesticides when we really need to or going pesticide-free wherever possible. Um, Again, really thinking about managed bees as maybe competitors or sources of disease for our wild bees, so only using those when absolutely needed. And focusing on conserving our biodiversity and wildlife as a whole, so trying to keep our ecosystems intact um, as much as we can as we continue to you know, grow our human population in different places. Right. Sheila, is this kind of work being done elsewhere? Um, sorry, uh, conservation, sort of like Yeah, like the building of the wild bee kind of population. Yeah. Is this being done and is it successful? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's great systems, out in, great programs out in the U.S. that help farmers, train farmers to be more 
ecologically um, inclined. Um, so teaching them how to incorporate native habitat into their farms as well. Uh, we have a company called Alice Alternative, it's not a company, it's an NGO, um, Alternative Land Use Service in Canada, and they provide incentives for farmers to incorporate native habitat into their, their farms. And in the city of Toronto, we just passed our, our pollinator uh, protection strategy, which really focuses on conserving native bees and giving residents native plants and having people who are managed lands in the city use native native plants wherever possible and thinking about native bee populations wherever possible. So then what do you think of the idea then of urban beekeeping, which you're right, has become very popular? Yeah, I think um, cities need to, to take a step back from that and really think about why you're doing that. If you're promoting beekeeping, what you're promoting is um, for someone to have a hobby, to produce their own honey, and to feel good about themselves, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be saving the bees in that in that area. Um, in order to really think about conserving bees, we need to think about cities as maybe places where bees can be protected from diseases, from managed bees, or protected from pesticide use, which is so rampant in agricultural areas. The cities can actually be a haven for our native bee diversity, and we need to take that seriously. Sheila, I find this so interesting because, like, what you're saying might not make you very popular with a lot of beekeeping no. associations. <laughs> you probably know that, right? It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so what do but they say? That being said, I do, I do really value um, beekeepers who are very knowledgeable and take their, uh, their profession seriously and worry about these things as well. Is there a way to balance those two groups? I think so. Um, definitely. I mean, we're, we're not going to escape honey beekeeping at this point. I mean, it's entrenched in a lot of what we do here in Canada. But being really smart about using honeybees when you need to and being quick to deal with diseases as they pop up and having that really good training where people understand what a big responsibility it is to have a bee beehive, you know. It's not the kind of thing that you can just put in your backyard and, you know, leave alone for the whole summer. You need to be there every day and should be tracking and make sure you're not doing any harm. So interesting. All right, Sheila, thanks so much for explaining. I learned so much talking to you today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That is Sheila Call, who's an assistant professor of environmental studies at York University. An update now to a story we first told you about a little bit earlier in the show, having to do with the Canadian Armed Forces saying that they've made minimal progress on eliminating sexual misconduct. That's not the kind of news that you want to hear. Uh, Stats Can survey of about 36,000 service members found a minuscule drop in the percentage of military personnel who reported having been the victims of sexual assaults over the previous 12 months. So after all of these stories and everything has come to light on this. To talk more about this, we are joined now by Mike LeCouture, who's a global national parliamentary correspondent and has been looking into this. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate that walk-up music in the intro. That uh, really gets you pumped up. Gets you up going, doesn't it, right? Oh, yeah, it really does. And it now does. you are going to tell us all about this story too, because those numbers really are shocking when you consider this has been in the news for the last couple of years. It has. I mean, when you consider that in 2015, the retired Supreme Court Justice Marie Deschamps found that there was this underlying sexual culture in the military that often left victims to fend for themselves. Uh, and then today, in 2019, uh, military brass, the vice uh, chief of defense staff, the second um, top-ranking military person in the Canadian forces, says with this blunt admission that, look, um, we've had limited progress. Uh, consider this. In 2018, 900 members of the regular Canadian Armed Forces, or as roughly 1.6% of them, um, reported being victims of sexual assault over the previous year. I mean, that is not 
an incredible change here, uh, but they are trying to say that, look, it takes time when you have an organization this big, changing the culture really you know, doesn't happen with the flick of a switch. But then there are critics. I mean, there's a retired uh, Colonel Michel Drapeau, who's now a lawyer, who says, yes, there it can happen yeah. with the flick of a switch. You just have severe penalties. Uh, we spoke to one um, victim's adv- advocates group and said, look, if you hold men accountable, and, and this is the quote, um, and you'll hear it tonight in my story, when men know that they will not get away with rape, they will stop raping. Point final. And that, I think, is the message that a lot of people are looking at here with this report and saying, how can this persist? Yeah, I know. That's an, like their explanation of it. You can't just make it happen overnight. I'm thinking, wait a minute. This is a top-down organization. These are people who make a living following orders. And now you're saying you can't make them do something? Exactly. And, and I think one of the more disappointing stats is when you consider the female reservists, so not the, uh, the front lines, but the reservists, uh, they reported a spike in incidents involving a superior or someone of a higher rank. In the two years that they looked at, um, mm. it jumped from 38% to 51%. So, you know, this culture that they're trying to change, Operation Honor, clearly it's not working. Whatever they're doing right now, there are still people within the forces that believe that they can do this and get away with it. What are they planning to do then in response? Did they talk about that? Uh, they haven't really. They keep saying we're going to keep going and, and keep uh, making sure that people understand that this is not tolerated. Uh, you know, you have uh, people like Minister Sajjan uh, who are saying it's upsetting um, and that this hasn't been dealt with almost immediately. But this is, an, you know, an issue that we know is systemic. And he says that this is an operation. It was called Operation Honor by uh, the Chief of Defense Staff, um, General Jonathan Vance, and Canadian military do not fail operations. Now, the question is, when is this operation going to be over? Because any operation has an end date, and I don't know that they understand or that they feel that there's a a finish line that they need to hit here, because it is frankly taking, you know, the fact that it's taking this long is too long. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand what is taking so long. Is there not enough pressure, do you think, Mike, applied to this? Like, what does the government have to say here? Well, clearly, uh, you know, what Sajjan was saying to us today was that this is something that preoccupies them. They want this to get done. Uh, but where it is not moving, that's where nobody really understands it. Uh, and, you know, that is where the, the answer will lie. Um, mm-hmm. How do you get if, you know, General Vance is saying this has to change? Is it along the chain of command on the way down that it's not changing? Um, is it on the ground? Is it you know the officers facing their their actual um, their actual soldiers and military people that that's not changing? It's not clear where the disconnect is because certainly at the top they're saying all the right things to reporters and in front of cameras, but it's not happening on the yeah. ground if you believe this uh, this survey. Okay, all right, Mike. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That is Mike Lecouture, who's our global national parliamentary correspondent.